All right, well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 73. If you'd like a title for this morning's message, I've called it The Secret of Contentment. And if you're new to Sovereign Grace, what you're going to experience this morning is, is part of our psalm series. We're actually, as a local church, going through Acts, but we've pressed the pause button just for the summer holidays to really give some time to this. In February, we're actually going to be also giving a, a month over to Mission. We're going to be calling it Mission Month, and I'll explain more about that when we hit February. Uh, but right now, we're, we're in the Psalms. And today we come to what is personally for me one of my all-time favorite Psalms. A Psalm that has had a major impact on my life personally. And when I heard, first heard it preached by Josh Harris at New Attitude 2004, a young adult sovereign grace conference when I was a young adult, I was impacted. And it changed my life. And I want you to be impacted by this psalm today. I believe the Lord wants you to be impacted by this psalmist's instructions. And I can think of no better time of year to preach on this psalm than indeed this one. So let's pray and then we'll get into it together. Well, Lord, how good it is to experience your presence in song. As we get to sing of your mercies, as we get to remind ourselves of your glories and your goodness. How good it is to know your nearness and to know your truths affecting our hearts as the word of God in song dwells in us richly. Lord, as we now come to you in the word, would you open our eyes? Holy Spirit, would you come and would you impart your wisdom and your understanding to every soul and heart in the room? Would we leave this room informed and affected? Lord, have your way amongst us by your grace. Amen. New Year, I always think it every year, but New Year is such an an interesting time, isn't it? New Year is a time for reflection and for looking back. For some reason, as the clock strikes 12 and the fireworks go off, there are so many emotions that flood us. For that 10 minutes, all the emotions that flood us, are those fireworks are amazing. But after that, there is a time, I think, both pre and post that, when you start to look back at the year that's gone. For some of us, that's sad because you had a great year and you just think, man, what a, what a wonderful year. I'll remember that year for the rest of my life. For others of you, you may be thinking, I will remember that year for the rest of my life. I'm pleased it's gone. It's always a time of reflection. We think back to what has happened in our lives, what God has done in the previous year. But it is also time, I time, I think, where we, where we start to anticipate the future. And we start to wonder about the future. And we start to wonder, I wonder what this year is going to hold for us. I wonder what this year is going to hold for us as a local church. I wonder what this year is going to hold for us as individuals. We start to wonder about so many different things pertaining to our lives, don't we? But the question I want to ask you at the start of this year is simply this one. Is God alone enough for you? Whatever happens this year in your life, whatever happens this year in the lives of us as a local church, is God alone enough for you? Is God alone enough for you if your circumstances don't change this year? And even though you hope they will, and even though you pray they will, if they don't, is God still going to be enough for you? If your health challenges remain, even though you're crying out to God for grace that they disappear, if God deems it that you will be like Paul and you will continue with the thorn in your flesh, Is he alone then still going to be enough for you? If your relationship challenges remain the same this year, maybe with family, maybe with friends, whatever those relationship challenges look like, if these circumstances don't change this year, is God going to be enough for you? Is he alone going to satisfy you? 
If the house that you so desperately want to buy or rent does not come through, even though you're crying out to God that it will, if it doesn't, is he still going to be enough for you? And what about if you don't manage to get that job that you've been going for? You know, the one that you've been training for, the one that you've been praying for, the one that you've been hoping for, for months, maybe even years. If that does not arrive this year, is God alone still going to be enough for you? You know, in our heart of hearts, I think we all know how we would like to answer the question of, is God alone enough for you, don't we? We all know what we would like to say. Because I think what we would like to say is written here for us in Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26. Look with me. The psalmist says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Now, that's what we would like to answer, isn't it? I'm sure every one of us in the room who loves Jesus, we want to be able to say that. Yes, God alone will be enough for me. God alone is enough for me. He is my portion forever. And yet in all reality, we're so often not there, are we? I know so often I'm not there. We get tempted by the cravings of our heart and we get seduced into thinking That yes, without doubt, we we need God to be truly satisfied and happy and fulfilled in our lives. But we get seduced into thinking that we need God plus something else. We need God plus the relationship, plus the health, plus the house, plus the car. So we need God, but we get seduced into thinking that we need God plus. And if we're honest, then I think it's psalms like this, particularly moments like this in these psalms, that can be challenging towards us, can't it? They can actually, I think, for us as Christians on occasion, be discouraging. They can be confusing. They can sometimes, I think, even be irritating. And I've experienced irritation with scriptures like this. You, you just think, you know, what is this guy on? Is he like that kid in the class that always sits close to the teacher? And when the teacher says, am I alone enough to you? They go, oh, yes, you alone are enough of me. You you start to be irritated with what is wrong with this golden boy here. It can be discouraging as you encounter this verse. It can be confusing. It can, on occasion, I think, be irritating. And the reason for that is because I think, at least on face value, it can be difficult to relate, can't it? You think, was this man just born on a different planet or something? Was he born with these superpower gifts? Or is he just lying? It's struggling. We struggle to relate to really the heart of what he's saying here. And though we want it, it seems so distant from us. You know, one of the great surprises, I think, of this psalm as you read it, is you begin to understand just how alike you and I are to this psalmist. Because where he finishes in verse 25 and 26, declaring to the Lord that you alone are enough for me, he doesn't start there. In verse 2 onwards, he is in a very different circumstance. And as you examine the psalm in its entirety, then you realize, I'm just like that guy. He's just like me. I can relate. And it's as you journey with him then, which I've had the joy of doing all week, It's as you journey then with this psalmist that I think we learn something truly profound. We learn the secret of contentment. We learn from this guy who in actual fact is just like us what it looks like then to position ourselves in our lives so that we can be truly satisfied in the Lord, truly content in Him, truly amazed by His glories. And so I have three points this morning. Number one, the psalmist's testimony. Number two, the dramatic change. And then number three, the astounding opportunity. And that's how we're going to divide up this psalm and look into God's word together as we pursue discovering what the secret of contentment really is. So number one, the psalmist's testimony. 
You'll notice above verse 1 of Psalm 73, it says, A psalm of Asaph. Let me introduce Asaph to you. Asaph, oh, he's quite a guy. He's a director of one of the national Levitical choirs under King David. He is an amazing singer. He's an amazing musician. He's like the Zane Shoe of, you know, this season. You know, this is a guy who just leads the band for the glory of the Lord, leads the singing for the glory of the Lord. Everybody knows who he is. Everybody looks up to him. They're grateful for him. And he is quite a guy. He would go on, indeed, to write 12 psalms. Psalm 50 and then Psalm 73 to 83 are all psalms introduced for us and given to us by Asaph as God uses Asaph. To breathe life through him indeed to us. And yet right here, in this psalm as it begins, Asaph starts describing a season of life for us that wasn't so hot for him. In fact, it's a season of life for him where he was seriously struggling. And as you read it, see if you can't relate to him. See if you can't see yourself in him. Let's look at verse 1 together. A psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. See, Asaph doesn't start out this journey in his life satisfied and amazed with God's grace. He doesn't start out full of faith and full of satisfaction in who God is, declaring in verse 2, Lord, you're simply amazing. I'm overwhelmed with who you are. No, he starts out this journey saying his feet had almost slipped. He looks on at the wicked and he sees them prospering. And as a result, he is struggling with Envy towards them. See, Asaph knows the Lord. He knows the Lord's goodness and he knows the Lord's justice. He knows who God is and he's overwhelmed with God's goodness and justice. But the thing that is perplexing him in this moment is how is it that these people who don't know you, who don't love you, who mock you, are prospering? How is it that although I live for you, Lord, all these other people that mock you are prospering? And to be honest, they're prospering more than me. They're better off than me. They're doing better than I am. He's greatly struggling with envy towards people in the world. And in verse 4 through to verse 9, he starts to describe then what he sees. What he sees in the wicked as he peers over the fence and examines their life. Well, this is his assessment. Let's look together. Verse 4. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. And their tongue struts through the earth. It's important to note that with all sin, particularly envy, we don't see in 2020 vision. You know what I'm saying? We think we do when we struggle with sin, don't we? When we're looking at a situation, maybe a disagreement, a complaint, a conflict, or indeed envy, we think that we see everything in 2020 crystal vision, that what we're saying is fact. That's what we need to temper what he's saying in that regard. He's not saying this is fact, but he is saying this is what I see. In this season of his life, he is looking on at the world with envy and it is skewing his whole sense of reality. But nonetheless, this as a result is what he sees. He sees a people who seem to have no troubles. They're always healthy, always strong. They are fat and sleek. They're never stricken like the rest of mankind. They are beautiful and together people. And that's all he can see. These guys are rocking it out. These guys are so blessed. And yet, these are people where there is no humility before their eyes. 
There's no fear of the Lord before their eyes. Instead, these are people who scoff and mock at the Lord. They scoff and mock at the Lord. They do not care about the Lord. They do not fear the Lord. And yet in their lives, they just seem to be prospering all the time. And he's envious. He wants what they have. In verses 10 through 12 then, he continues his assessment even more succinctly. Here's what he says. He says, therefore, his people turn back to them. And find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? They're mocking him. Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease. They increase in riches. He's basically saying in those three verses, these people mock the Lord. They look on at God and say, how does he know? And if he does know, clearly he doesn't care. He's not bothered what we do. He's not bothered what we think. And indeed, the truth is, it would appear that these people who mock the Lord, verse 11, they don't find fault with each other. Instead, as each other prosper, they form groups around those who are prospering. We usually then go on to call them celebrities. And these people who don't know the Lord, who mock the Lord, everybody begins to worship. Because clearly something must be going right for them. Everybody seems to be prospering and then people seem no fault in them and they go off and pursue them and idolize them. And to be honest, Asaph says, and they all seem to be prospering. All of them, all of the wicked, always at ease, they seem to increase their riches. Every last one of them that I see seems to be doing so darn well. And Asaph is envious. He's perplexed. How could a God who is good and just see these individuals who mock him prosper so much? But actually in his heart, it's not just a mind game. In his heart it is envy. It is him saying, I want what they have. My life seems so hard. Their life seems so amazing. My life, I get sick. I go through difficulties. I'm trying to work hard for my family. I'm trying to serve Jesus. They do none of these things, and yet always at ease. They seem to increase their riches. It seems easy for them. Asaph is without doubt envious, isn't he? He's struggling in this moment with the sin of envy. And that is a surprising start then to this psalm, isn't it? And you realize, I can relate more to him than I ever thought. See, the Vines Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words, under the word envy, says this, as a definition. Envy is the, feel, is the feeling of a strong displeasure over the witnessing or hearing of the advantage or prosperity of others. Say that again, envy is the feeling of a strong displeasure. A feeling of strong displeasure at something. At what? Over the witnessing, the seeing, or the hearing of either the advantage or the prosperity of others. That's exactly, is it not, what Asaph is experiencing in this moment. He's looking on at the world and he is experiencing a strong displeasure over what he sees. Because what he sees is these people who mock the Lord prospering. It's all going great for them. And so what he's experiencing is a strong displeasure towards what he sees. He's covetous of having what they have. And he senses a strong displeasure that they have it and he does not. My friends, when you see that, Let me ask you, who amongst us then cannot relate? Who in this room cannot relate, at least to some degree, to the experience or feeling as to what Asaph is feeling in this moment? We all do, don't we? You go on Facebook, the trusty Facebook And you scroll down, you look at people's updates, and you look at their photos, and for a while it's fun. And so it's so much fun when you're first going on there that you start to go on once a day. And then it's so much fun that you actually start to go on ten times a day. Because it seems like a priority that I have to know what my 1,683 friends are doing in the last hour. 
And so we go on Facebook regularly. We spend time. And to start off with, it seems fun. But growingly, what you start to realize as you go on Facebook is my life sucks. Everybody else's life is amazing. They never argue. They never have any financial issues. Their families just say, Daddy, I love you so much. They're going on holidays. They're going in these different homes. My life isn't like that. And we know in our heart of hearts that Facebook is indeed fake book. We only put certain things on there. We don't say on there, oh, guess what? Had a blazing row with my wife today and my kids won't respond with me. I hate them. We never say that. No, we just tell everybody the good stuff. And as we report the good stuff, we all go on and look at each other's good stuff and we wonder, why is my life not like that? And then on our Facebook, we start scrolling through photos and we start scrolling through updates. And we start to locate people who don't know the Lord, who, who don't follow Jesus. They, they catch our eyes for some reason. And sometimes they catch our eyes because these guys seem to have it so good. They seem to have these amazing holidays. I don't have these holidays. Why don't I have these holidays? Oh, I know. It's because I tithe. They don't tithe. Why can't I go on holidays like they go on holidays? We go on all this stuff. And before we know it, what starts out as fun, and I'm not anti-Facebook, by the way, but I do believe if left undiscerning, it can be a distinct location of envy in our hearts. Because so much of what people see is just what they want you to see rather than the reality of their lives. And it can be a place then that I think can so easily foster envy and foster disunity and foster challenge if we're not discerning about what we write. For some of us, we also have friends beyond Facebook. And so we actually find ourselves over at an unbeliever's home. We're actually in their home, not just looking at them on a TV screen, but we're actually physically in their home. And it's good because we want to win them to Jesus Christ. We want to tell them about the gospel. We want to befriend them just like Jesus would. We want to be Jesus' hands and feet to this couple. And we arrive at their home, and what is immediately obvious is you've got a great home. This home is, this home is awesome. And so you say to them, man, you have got a lovely home. And they say, oh, would you like to love a look around? And you think, yes, I would like to have a look around. So you start to be looked around the house. You start to go around the house. And at the time, you're, you're really rejoicing with them that, man, you've got a lovely home. And you have a wonderful evening. You go home and you lie in bed and you communicate to your wife, wasn't that a wonderful home? And she says, yes, that was a wonderful home. And just before lights out, you go on www.realestate.com.au. And you inquire as to how much a home might like that be. And you discover how much a home might like that be. And instead of now rejoicing with your friend, you think, what's up with that? Why are they prospering in this way? I love Jesus. I'm following Jesus. I'm even in their home to try and win them to Jesus. And yet I live in this house with two bedrooms and a dog of the underneath person that keeps sort of rabbiting every morning. I'm never going to be able to afford a home. What's up with this? And we start to be envious of that friend. You get to know another friend, who, another one who doesn't love Jesus and you get to spend time with him and his marriage and in his life. And what becomes immediately obvious is this guy has a great marriage. And his kids just love him so much. I mean, genuinely. And you rejoice with this unbelieving friend that that's true. And you're aware that this is common grace. And that's wonderful. But as you go home and you settle into yet another argument with your wife, you can begin to wonder, why is it so easy for them and not easy for me? I'm seeking to lay my life down to serve my wife. And yet it is not as easy for me as it is for them. They seem to have this wonderful, incredible sexual intimacy. And yet me and my wife who love the Lord are struggling in sexual intimacy. What's up with that? I want what they have. I want kids like theirs. I want a marriage like theirs. I don't want their marriage. I don't want to be married to that woman. I want to be married to this woman. But I want it to be like that. 
And why is it not? You know, I'd love to tell you that this application of envy is just towards the wicked. But it's not, is it? The application of this envy, I think, if we're discerning, is far broader than just towards the wicked. The application of envy is towards the righteous as well, isn't it? Do you realize that? We envy the unrighteous. But the truth is, we envy the righteous as well. We can be succumbed and seduced into envying what our family has, what our believing friends has. The truth is, we can even be succumbed into believing that what the church has, people who we do life with week in, week out, that I want that. And I'm experiencing displeasure that you've got it and I haven't. Is that true? It's not just hemlined for an unbelieving thing, is it? And so you pull into the car park in your Ford Territory, bright blue, because it's the only color you could get. And then there's this dent in the front, and there's a dent in the back, and there's a scrape along the entire side of the car, and it seems to get dented and scraped each week. One time you open the back window and it practically fell out and it's never been fixed since. Every time you drive up the road, within 20 yards, the engine management light comes on and you pull over and you turn it off and turn it back on before you drive off again. And you pull in to the car park out there in your blue Ford territory just as your friend is arriving in your favorite car that they have just purchased. And you want to rejoice with them. But instead, you go on your phone momentarily to check Facebook because that's what we like to do. And while we were there, we pretend that we haven't noticed the car. And as they get out the car, you get out the car and you invest, you investigate their car. And then you turn around towards your car and you think, what's up with this? When is it going to be my turn to have a car that works? When can I have this? Why is God blessing them and not me in this way? And so you proceed out of the car. You're trying to have a happy part, a happy heart between like the car park and the entrance because you know somebody's going to greet you in Jesus' name. And so you arrive and just as you smile at the steward to say, welcome, isn't it good to be here? They say, oh, it's so good to be here. Guess what? We got the house. And you think, good. And you do what every Christian does in that moment. You say, congratulations. But in your heart, you think, is this for real? How is this? Lord, when is it going to be my turn? It's not that you're displeased for others in the church. You are genuinely pleased that God has blessed them. But in your heart of hearts, somewhere hidden is envy. Because there is also a displeasure with what they have. Because you wanted it. There's also a sadness and a strong feeling of displeasure in your heart because you hear or see things that they have. My friends, that could be belongings, relationships, lifestyle, the list goes on. But envy is all all over our hearts, isn't it? And it is this type of envy that Asaph, without doubt, is being completely and utterly eaten up by. And it's in verse 13 then that he reaches an all-time low. Look with me. Verse 13, he says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. All in vain. What he's saying there is simply this. Lord, as I look on at the wicked and I see them prospering, I see them doing well all the time, even though they mock you, Lord, what's the point then? What's the, what's the point? He's not angry with the Lord, but he does want to throw the tail in. Lord, I serve you. I, I give to the church. I, I love my wife. I seek to serve my friends. I'm passionate about you. I arise each morning to encounter you. I pursue holiness. I attend my life group. I seek to serve people all around me. Lord, I love you. I want to bless you. But it would appear that it's all been a vain. Because it would appear, at least on the face of it, you don't want to bless me. I see others prospering that don't even love you. And yet I don't seem to prosper like that. I see other people going through just these great health. 
And yet they mock you. And yet for me, I'm struggling with my health. And yet I've prayed to you and I've been crying out to you for help. He's in effect saying, you know, what's the use? And this is why, my friends, envy is such a grievous and damaging sin. And the more I thought about it this week, the more clear it becomes. You see, the reason why envy is such a damaging and grievous sin and has such a harmful effect on us as individuals is because of this. Although envy starts out towards a displeasure with somebody in the horizontal, it always culminates into a displeasure in the vertical. What starts out as a displeasure to what somebody else has at a peer level stage that you don't have always ends up and culminates pointing the finger to God and saying, Lord, what's up with this? Why are you blessing them and not me? What are you doing? Do you not care? Are you not bothered? Do you not see all the things I do for you? Are you not aware of how I love you and serve you? I want to pursue holiness so that I become more like you. What starts off horizontal, aware that they have something that we do not have, always culminates in the vertical. As we say to the Lord, Lord, why? My friends, whenever we are charging the Lord with, Lord, why did you let that happen to me? Why did you take that away from me? Why do they get something that I don't get? Why do they get to ongoingly experience something that I don't have? I submit to you, when you experience those things, envy is never far from your door. Whenever those things start to culminate in our hearts and we're tempted to point the finger to the Lord, more often than not, it's because what started in the horizontal has now gone vertical. And he now is the object of our dissatisfaction. And just like the psalmist then, we are tempted to say, all in vain. What's the point? What's the point in even trying and carrying on to do this? Well, the psalm doesn't end there. Praise God for that. So let's look now at number two, the dramatic change. See, Asaph is convinced in verse 13 that it has all been a waste of time. It has all been in vain. And yet just 12 verses later, we read, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. That is a dramatic change, is it not? One minute he wants to throw in the towel. The next minute he is worshipping the Lord and saying, You are more than enough for me. You are my portion forever. You are all of my delight. Well, what then led to that dramatic transformation? How did this occur in his life? Here is the jewel of this psalm. How did it occur? Well, look with me at verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. He tried to understand it. He tried to figure it out. You ever done that as a Christian? Just leave me a minute. I'll figure it in my mind. I will sort out in my mind what is going on. And yet he's saying, you know, I tried to do that. I tried to understand it. I tried to figure it out. But it seemed to me a wearisome task. It was just so difficult. In verse 21 and 22, then he says, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Asaph understands in my mind, I was trying to figure it out. In my mind, I was trying to understand what on earth is going on. And yet I couldn't. I was brutish towards the Lord. I was blameful towards the Lord. I was like a beast towards him, if I'm honest. It seemed to me a wearisome task. But then, verse 17. It seemed to me a wearisome task. Until, listening, until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I discerned their end. It seemed a wearisome task to me. I couldn't figure it out. 
I tried. I, I just couldn't get it. I couldn't get it through my mind what on earth God is doing. And then I went into the sanctuary of God. You know, whenever Asaph talks about sanctuary in his Psalms, he's always talking about God's presence. I couldn't figure it out until I went into the presence of God. And then it all made sense. It was when Asaph spent time in the presence of God that it changed. He tells us that it's when I went into the sanctuary of God, everything changed. When I went into the presence of the one who made all things, who sustains all things, who is the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is eternal in all things, the majesty of all the earth, the one who breathed forth the stars and names them and sustains them, the one who can mark off the heavens with a, a breadth of his hands. When I went into the presence of him and his majesty, the one who knows me, the one who knitted me together in my mother's womb, the one who saved me and called me and adopted me, the one who calls me child, the one who watches over my coming and my going, the one who promises me that his mercies will be new to me day after day after day, the one who tells me his grace will be sufficient for me, the one who pursues me each and every day of my lives like a good shepherd with his goodness and his mercy when I spent time in his presence. That's when it all changed. That's when my heart was softened. That's when, for me, I discerned what God was doing and what their end was. And that, for me, is where I discerned who God was for me and where I was in His majesty and splendor. It was when I spent time in His presence that, for me, it all changed. Charles Haddon Spurgeon says it this way, he said, Asaph's mind entered the eternity where God dwells as in a holy place. He left the things of sense for the things invisible. His heart gazed within the veil and he, he stood where the thrice holy God stands. Thus, listen, he shifted his point of view. An apparent disorder resolved itself into harmony. Asaph just couldn't figure it out. He's looking on at others envious. He's looking on at displeasure towards what they have. And that culminates in displeasure towards the Lord as he feels this has all been a waste of time. I'm seeking to serve you, I love you, and yet always at ease they increase their riches, but it's so hard for me. Always at ease they keep good health, but it's so hard for me. Always at ease they live in relational paradise, but I do not. And I could not make sense of it. And then... I spent time in the presence of God. I spent time with Him and His majesty and His holiness, aware of how great He truly is. And apparent disorder then resolved itself into harmony. My friends, therein lies, I think, the real jewel of this psalm and the thing that I want you to remember. Because therein lies the secret of contentment. Asaph does not manage to just suppress his envies and pretend that they're not there. That's not what he does. When asked, he would have told you, yes, this is a struggle for me. He doesn't pretend they're not there and just harbor them and live with them secretly. As if as a Christian, he's meant to suppress them in some way, just in and of himself. Likewise, Asaph is not given all of the envies of his heart. There is no reference to that here. There is no change in his physical circumstances whatsoever. But there is quite clearly a massive change in his heart. How did that come about? Well, contentment for Asaph came as he spent time in the presence of the Lord. And there, my friends, is the secret of contentment for every single one of us. You see that? The secret of contentment is time in the presence of the Lord. If you want to be content, you want to walk through your life satisfied, so do I. You challenged with envy? Yes. Well, the secret of contentment, 
of true satisfaction in the Lord so that you may say, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. The secret of that contentment is time in the presence of the Lord. You know what, Sovereign Grace, I think sometimes as Christians, we have a challenge of over-theologizing and making things that are actually simple so darn complicated. And we start to think, oh, it must be so complicated to be content. There's probably so many things I've got to do. Not according to Asaph. It's just half a sentence in his whole psalm. I went into the sanctuary of God. And so it is to this day. The secret of contentment is time in the presence of the Lord. And that brings us finally to number three, the astounding opportunity. And my friends, I submit to you, I think this is astounding. And it speaks to every single one of us in this room. Because I submit to you, listen, the Asaph's contentment came as he spent time in the presence of God. And here then is the application. That same God whose presence Asaph entered into as he came into the sanctuary is also inviting you and me into his presence today. That same God that Asaph spent time with in his presence in the sanctuary is the same God who looks at you in your eye as an individual, as his child, and says, listen, come and delight yourself in me. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and and I will give you a rest. Is any one of you thirsty? That's okay. Come to me and drink. Draw close to me. And I will draw close to you. My friends, do you see this? Through the blood of Jesus Christ, we can boldly approach the throne of grace. We don't have to earn our way into God's presence. There was always sacrifice needed to go into the presence of God in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, that sacrifice has been done because that sacrifice was the sacrifice of Jesus Christ himself. And so for us now as New Testament Christians, there is no more sacrifice. The sacrifice has been achieved by Jesus Christ in our place. His blood has been spilt on the altar and so that now as Christians, boldly, we can approach the throne of grace. 24-7. Not on this hill or that hill, not on this mountain or that mountain. You can worship me anywhere now. Because you've been sprinkled clean with the blood of Jesus Christ. And so Boldly you can come into the presence of God. Do I have to earn my way in? No. Jesus Christ has earned your way in. But I don't know whether I can really approach. I mean, I'm sinful. I do things wrong. Well, that makes two of us. And your sin, as we sang this morning in Here is Love, has been cleansed and washed clean. It has been put away. And so boldly you can come into the Father's presence. My friends, all the way through Scripture, He's inviting you to do that. He's inviting us to come boldly. We can approach Him and come into the presence of God just like Asaph did. And so I want to encourage you then, my friends, in the year ahead, at a very minimum, as individuals, as we set our sights on what is to come in the year ahead, here's here's my prayer. That as individuals, we would be a people of the presence of God this year. That we would be a people that practice the presence of God. That spend time in His presence, that know His nearness as we read His Word. We don't just read His Word because I'm doing a Bible reading plan and, oh gosh, I've got to do three chapters, so I'll rush through them and then tick the box. We read the Word to, to experience the presence of God. We read the Word because we're aware this is the Word that guides my path. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That doesn't just mean, well, I'm going to read the word because it's going to help me work out the way forward and how to make decisions. No, I read the word because it gives me parameters and functions and perspectives for all of my life. 
It's a lighter to my path because it's all I need. It's got everything in it. And when I read it and spend time in it, God through the Holy Spirit that resides in my heart brings it alive to me. And I see life with perspective. I see who he is in his holiness and his majesty. I see who the wicked are. I see who others are. I see who I am. It's the same with prayer. Paul tells us to pray without ceasing. That's not just, well, okay, listen, under your breath, if there's any chance, just, you know, kind of mutter something all day, because God really likes it. Do your best. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about pray without ceasing, because he's saying, live life with Jesus. Live life understanding and experiencing the presence of God as you communicate to him. Don't just have a little God slot in a day. But as you live your day, walk closely with Him. Realize that He is walking with you. You may turn off from Him, but He never turns off from you. So communicate to Him. Help Him to know. Help you to know, rather, His presence. Communicate to Him. Pray without ceasing. Talk to Him. Ask Him. Love Him. It's the same with worship. I thought Riley just did a wonderful job last week of communicating in Psalm 92 how singing reminds us just how great God is. That's why Sunday morning singing is so important in part. We don't just do it because it's like, well, it's a bit of a warm-up and then we preach and that's the real stuff. No, singing allows people like me and you, sinful, distracted, perspective-believing people like me and you, start to sing songs of truth, and as we sing them, we feel our lives gaining perspective again. Because the presence of God comes. The Holy Spirit brings these words alive to us, and they're not just words anymore, they're truths that start to fill our souls. My friends, when it comes down to it, I believe we all know how to be a people of his presence. I do. Sovereign Grace, you're well taught. We all know that when I spend time with God in his word and in prayer and in song and in worship, we know what a difference that makes in our lives, don't we? But I think as individuals, we're just like most other churches, and I know I certainly am. We don't struggle with the hearing. We struggle with the doing. God gives us this incredible opportunity. The the curtain of the Holy of Holies is torn in two as Jesus says, it is finished. And God then invites us, come to me, spend time with me. And we say, I'm coming, I'm coming, but I'm just going to check Facebook first. Do you see how ridiculous it is when you see the grand opportunity that God gives us, the opportunity that he pervades before our lives? The profound opportunity that he says, come to me and I will give you rest. You're weary? I understand that. Because you spent too long looking at the world rather than looking at me. So come to me. I'll help you. I'll give you grace. Sovereign grace, would we be doers of the word this year then? Amen. Would we be a people of his presence? Would we practice his presence by reading the word and, and praying and waiting on the Lord and allowing songs that are cross-centered to be the theme tunes of our days as we arise in the morning and listen to these tunes? Allowing the words to be burnt into our very lives. And here then is my hope. Here is the anticipated fruit that I believe we will experience if we do that. If we spend time in the presence of God believe this will be our declaration. Lord, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. My friends, the secret of contentment is not getting everything you want. And it's not suppressing all those desires and envies of your heart as if they're not there. The secret of contentment is boldly approaching the throne of grace. Spending time with God in his presence. And I can encourage you, would that be our story this year? Not only publicly on a Sunday, but privately. This is so important. Would we be a people of his presence? And would this then be our theme, amen? Would this be our song? learning from this guy who in all reality is just like us, would we also then follow his path? And would Jesus, the Lord and King of all grace, truly then be enough for us this year? And would he be our song? Let's pray.
Lord, I thank you for the way you address us in your word. Oh Lord, only you in your magnificence and splendor could breathe these words to us through a man's story. Oh Lord, I'm so grateful that you have included Psalm 73 in your word. Lord, thank you so much for quickening Asaph's heart to record his testimony for us so that we may learn from it and learn the secret of contentment. Lord, would you give us grace then to walk in this? And Lord, as the year maps out ahead and plans are made and excitements and anticipations are considered, Lord, maybe even fears are considered of what lies ahead. Would we find security and hope and joy in your presence? And as we spend time in your presence day after day after day, I thank you that you are not restricted nor not inclined to approach us but you wait for us you want us to come so that you can presence yourself with us day after day after day Lord would that be our story then would we walk with you this year would we walk in your presence and would contentment then of a satisfied soul be our theme in Jesus name Amen you know This message today may have been a reminder for you. Maybe something you think, I I needed that. And I needed that direction from the Lord to really come back and ensure that I find my satisfaction in Him. But maybe for some of you it's more than that. Maybe this is a time where, to be honest, you're convicted of your sin. You're convicted of the envy that you've carried in your heart towards others and My friends, I want to encourage you then, whatever your circumstances, as we sing this final song, I I want us to sing it as our prayer. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Would that be our prayer this week and this year and this decade and this lifetime? Would he fill our gaze? And so would we use this time to come back to him in repentance and joy and to fill our gaze and stand together?